recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, Christagonia.org. And today is Friday, October 5th, 2012. Thank you for listening and praise Yahweh. You know, sometimes life throws us curves that we do not expect, or if you think like I do, the Spirit leads us to places that we never thought possible. I am now living in a modest apartment on the outskirts of Bristol, Virginia, and I will split my time between here and my mother's home in upstate New York. Melissa won't be listening to the program tonight in the chat room because she's listening in person, and and I'll I'll leave that at that. This program, where I plan on presenting Luke chapter 16, summarizes much of the content of the programs from the last two weeks. I wanted to give a, a... thorough overview of the parable of the unrighteous steward, which I did two weeks ago presenting Luke chapter 15, which is very important to Luke chapter 16, right? And I wanted to, um, I wanted to give a thorough exposition on what divorce was in Scripture from the scriptural point of view, as I did last week where uh, where I presented two papers that I had written several years ago. First, the divorce discourse, which is all about the pertinent passages here in Luke. And secondly, in a paper explaining what divorce is in Scripture, which I had written in 2009, I wrote that paper primarily to demonstrate that the tribe of Judah was divorced by Yahweh for the most part in, in the Assyrian and, and then later in the, in the Babylonian deportations because many people deny that the tribe of Judah was divorced by Yahweh simply because there is no bill of divorcement recorded in Scripture. Well, which is awfully silly and even pharisaical. The divorce is the action of putting a wife out of one's home. That is the divorce. The King James Bible translates the pertinent verbs as to put away. The bill of divorcement is simply the record of the action that was committed. The bill of divorcement is not the divorce itself. That's where modern lawyers and the modern legal system may have us confused. The tribe of Judah was indeed divorced, and that's an important element in understanding the redemption of all 12 tribes in Israel. If Judah was not divorced, Judah cannot be redeemed. And the spouse of Judah, which is Yahweh God, is primary, is basically dead because Yahweh died on the cross so that he can remarry the 12 tribes of Israel as Yahshua Christ. Yahshua Christ being Yahweh. It's a Christian paradox 
However, in the actions of Yahweh, the letter of the law is fulfilled. The letter of the law is fulfilled, and the 12 tribes of Israel are no longer liable to the judgment of the law for adultery, which is death. Yahweh himself chose to die on our behalf. That that is the summary of the reason for redemption in the first place and how it was accomplished. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 16. Two weeks ago, following the presentation of Luke chapter 15, I had given an outline of the reasons for the translation of Luke chapter 16, verses 8 and 9, as they appear in the Christogonian New Testament. Here we will summarize the explanation of the parable of the unrighteous steward once more, and begin by reading the verses in question. And I'll read Luke 6, 18. I'm sorry, and I'll read Luke chapter 16, verses 8 and 9. And the master praised the unrighteous steward because he did wisely, because the sons of this age are wiser than the sons of light are towards their own race. And I say to you, shall you make for yourselves friends from the riches of unrighteousness, that when you should fail they may receive you into eternal dwellings. In summary, in verse 8 of the chapter, there are two Greek words which practically all, if not all, of the popular translations of Luke fail to render properly. These words are ahion, which is rendered as age in the passage from the Christogenian New Testament, which I just quoted, and genea, which is rendered as race. The Greek word, ahion, is the word from which we have the English eon, and it represents a period of time and not of space. It cannot represent a period of space, an object of space. Therefore, it cannot be properly translated as world the way in which we generally understand the word world as it is used today. Today, most people conceive the word world to mean the planet and everybody on it. That's not what the Greeks meant when they used the word ahion, or eon, if you will, which can only be a period of time. With this, we will commence with Luke chapter 16, verse 1. Then he also said to the students, there was a certain wealthy man who had a steward, and he had suspected him of squandering his provisions his possessions, I'm sorry. And calling him, he said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give me an account of your stewardship, for you are no longer able to be steward. And the steward said to himself, What shall I do that my master has taken the stewardship from me? I am not able to dig, and I am not ashamed to beg. 
I know what I shall do in order that when I have been removed from the stewardship, they shall receive me into their houses. And calling on each one of those indebted to his master, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred baths of olive oil. So he said to him, take your records and quickly sitting down, write 50. That word bath, the Greek word batos, is actually the Hebrew word bath, and we see it in the Old Testament. It's equivalent to about nine gallons. According to Liddell and Scott, and, and we see this problem in society today with Europe and America and Canada. And According to Liddell and Scott, the bath, another unit of measure, the kados, the metretes, and the Roman amphora or amphorius were all nearly equal and all about nine gallons. They were just all different names for the same unit of measure. Verse 7 Next, he said to another, and how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred cores of grain. And he said to him, take your records and write 80. The chorus, or core here, cores in the plural, is a Hellenization of the Hebrew word core, Strong's number 3734. Liddell and Scott state that it's a dry measure containing 10 attic medimni or about 120 gallons. So that would be about 12,000 gallons of grain. And the master praised the unrighteous steward because he did wisely. That word wisely is phronimos. It may have been rendered sensibly or prudently. Because of the sons of this age, are wiser than the sons of light are towards their own race. The sons of this age. To ahionis tutu. The word ahionis is the genitive singular of the word ahion, eon in English. The word, defined by Liddell and Scott, is a period of existence. It could be an age, it could be a generation, it could be a long space of time, it could refer to a definite space of time, an era, an epoch, a period. It is, as I have explained, the source of our English word eon, and usually in the New Testament, as can be told from the context, it infers a long period of time. And therefore, it may be presumed to be equivalent to the span of many generations, as we use the term eon today. If Ahion indeed infers such a long space of time here, then the word Ganea, the word Ganea, which the King James translation translates as generation, but here it's translated race. If Ahion indeed infers such a long space of time in this passage, then the word Gnea, which appears later in the sentence, must be rendered as race, since many generations, as we use the term today, would be required to span 
this age, the sons of this age. Yet, if Ahion, Eon, if it infers a shorter duration, a single generation, or merely an era in time, then Ganea still must be rendered race, lest the use of the word is redundant and becomes meaningless. The translators of the King James Version must have realized this predicament. And here in this passage, as they did on several occasions elsewhere, they rendered the word Ahiona's world a meaning that the term, the term certainly does not have as we use the term world today. And eon can only refer to a period of time, not to an object of space. The word rendered towards here, towards their own race, is the word ice. Ice is a preposition used only with the accusative case, as it is here, and properly it is into. And sometimes it can mean to, T-O. Among other things, it could, in various contexts, be rendered at or with, to, or towards, in regard to, or for, according to Liddell and Scott. In certain contexts, it may sometimes be rendered in, as the King James translators rendered it here, but it is not commonly in. Liddell and Scott give one example where it may be rendered in, where in English we would say to look in the face. However, that usage is only due to English idiom because literally it would be translated to look at or to look towards the face. The Greek phrase, which the King James Version renders in their generation, would be properly expressed, if the King James Version were correct, with the preposition N and the dative case, not with the preposition ice and the accusative case. It should be rendered, as the Christogenia New Testament has it, towards or for or in regard to, as Little and Scott defined the word, towards or for or in regard to their own race. Very literal translation. The word Ganea has to be race here. It cannot, as it may be in some contexts, it cannot here be rendered a generation as an age or as a time of life, although they are, in other contexts, legitimate renderings of the word. However, even when the word Ganea appears in contexts in which it refers to a people who live all at the same time, it still does not lose the connotation of race. It refers to one race of people, 
who are alive all at the same time. That it should be rendered as race here is evident without resorting to any other biblical references, but from the full statement here alone. Tengenean Tain Teoton, or their own race, is literally the race that is of themselves. The articles in the word Genea are all in the accusative case, and so they are the object of the preposition ice. The pronoun, heaton, literally of themselves, but their own in the context here. That's how it's rendered, their own. The race of themselves and is literal, but in English we would say their own race, right? Is genitive plural and the pronoun, properly in Greek, reflects back to the subject. And so here, the Greek grammar insists that the term, their own race, only refers to the subject of the sentence, which are the sons of this age. It does not refer to the sons of light. Their own race refers only to, or or belongs only to the subject, the sons of this age. The Greek grammar insists upon that. Therefore, we have another reason, a third reason, why the word genea here must be rendered race. There are three grammatical arguments that the word must be rendered race and not generation. And that is because, since the phrase only belongs to the sons of this age, And since both the sons of this age and the sons of light are obviously contemporaneous and therefore they share the same period of time in their existence, therefore we see that the sons of this age are a race distinct from the sons of light. The Greek grammar insists upon that. Any other opinion can be shown to be patently dishonest. The King James translation is very wrong. The sons of this age and the sons of light are surely two separate races which are being referred to by Christ here. Therefore, it must be inferred that this is a reference to those races which have vied with each other throughout the age, which is the story of Scripture, just as Genesis 3.15 forebodes. That this struggle is extant at the time of Christ, is fully manifest elsewhere in Luke's Gospel, such as Luke chapter 10, where certain people were likened to serpents and scorpions and associated both with evil demons and with Satan's fall from heaven. Or Luke chapter 11, where it is made evident that those who disputed with Christ were all the descendants of Cain, since only Cain could be held responsible for the blood of Abel. 
Therefore, they could not have been, at least in whole, they could not have been of the descendants of Seth. Cain representing the seed of the serpent of Genesis 3.15. It is also manifest elsewhere in the New Testament, such as Matthew chapter 13, John chapter 8, Romans chapter 9, 1 John chapter 3, or Revelation 2.9 and 3.9, where we see that certain Judeans are not truly Judeans, but are of the assembly of the adversary. Even the account of Judas Iscariot, the Canaanite, while Judas was chosen by Christ for a specific purpose, even the account of Judas Iscariot is illustrative of this parable. For according to the Gospel of John, John 12, 6, chapter 12, verse 6, Judas Iscariot, traveling with the apostles, held the bag which contained the money belonging to the disciples. Judas, in other words, had somehow become the steward of what worldly riches had belonged to the group of the disciples. And it wasn't much, but he was the steward. And as John says, in John chapter 12, he was also a thief and a dissembler. Once it is realized that this parable is comparing two races of people, in the parable they are called the sons of this age and the sons of light, and that once these two groups are identified in the context of Scripture and traced down through history, then the startling profundity of the parable becomes manifest. But a Kenite, the Kenite, it depends on where you are in the scripture, it, it, you know, which determines what you want to call them. The Kenite, Canaanite, Edomite Jews have been the world's stewards, lawyers, scribes, bankers, and treasurers all through time and wherever they have traveled. Allowing one Jew into a position of power causes a flood of Jews into such positions in little time. History tells us that again and again. European history is a story of the struggle between Christian society and the constant attempts by the Jews to usurp it. With the advent of liberalism, the Jew seems to have prevailed. Whether one look at England in 1695, I think that was the year of the founding of the Bank of England, or in America in 1913. Once the Jew becomes the steward of a nation's wealth, once one of the sons of this age becomes the steward of a nation's wealth, the pattern is the same. First, the Jew, the dishonest steward, corrupts the host to subject, I'm sorry, corrupts the offices and policies of the land, primarily through usury. Then, as we saw with England and later with America, there was a turn to imperialism, using the host 
the corrupted host, to subject other nations. Now, while this is an oversimplification, it is precisely what has happened in recent centuries with the Jewish steward of the major Western economies. The Jewish stock investors financed imperialism and colonialism, both in Britain and in America. And then, under the lead of Jewish stock investors, all the former colonial so-called victims were enriched and empowered at the expense of those host nations, the former colonizers. England, a supposed victor in the last two world wars, lost its entire empire and was driven to destitution by the treachery of the international bankers in the aftermath of those wars. Now, the United States, the foremost manufacturing and military power for most of the 20th century, has lost nearly its entire manufacturing base for no reason other than the treachery of those same international bankers which have been given control of its economy. The dishonest stewards being given control of the economies of Christendom have in turn enriched all of the enemies of Christendom. Just like the unrighteous steward of the parable had sought to enrich those men who were indebted to his master in order that they would favor him because he lost his job, because he lost his stewardship. Christians have not learned these lessons because even their Bibles, even their Bibles are badly translated and poorly understood. Luke 16, 9. And I say to you, shall you make for yourselves friends from the riches of unrighteousness, that when you should fail, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. The word skene is a dwelling here. It's a covered place, a tent, a camp. Generally, it's a dwelling place, even a house or a temple. One other rendering evoking Old Testament language would be tabernacle. The word riches is actually mammonas in the Greek in verses 9, 11, and 13. It's riches in the Christian New Testament. It's mammon in the King James Version. That's really not wrong. Liddell and Scott state that Mammonus was a Syrian deity, the god of riches. Hence, the word is used to refer to riches or wealth in the New Testament. Yet, translating this verse, the differences between the Christogenian New Testament and the King James Version are much greater. Luke 16.9 is very, very naturally read as a question, which neither 
the King James Version, nor the Nestle Aland Novum Testamentum Greca, and A27, nor any of the other versions of the New Testament which I've seen read in such a manner. The Christogonian New Testament is probably, so far as I know, the only translation of the New Testament which renders Luke 16.9 as a rhetorical question. Rather, many commentators use Luke 16.9 as a statement to justify the wicked methods of the dishonest steward. And I've actually read commentators, commentaries that have done that. And those methods amount to stealing. So much drivel has been written concerning this verse because its being a rhetorical question has been overlooked by so many. The construction of the verbs here very, very naturally make for a rhetorical question where a verb of the indicative mood is followed by a verb of the subjunctive mood. You do this, and would this not be the result? The Greek verb, poiesate, the future indicative of poieo, here is, shall you make, in the Christogenian New Testament. Later in a sentence, the verb eclipe, the aorist subjunctive, is when you should fail, preceded by hotan, which means when. And it may have been written when you might fail. And the verb dexontahi is the aorist subjunctive and followed by umas, you, and being in the third person plural, they may receive you or they might receive you. A similar pattern of verbs in a sentence is found in Galatians 6.5, which I have also translated as a rhetorical question, contrary to many of the other translations. The indicative mood, as the first verb, poiesati, shall you make, is here, is often used in interrogation, even without an interrogative interrogatory particle, as William MacDonald, the Greek grammarian, explains on page 43 of his handbook, Greek Enchiridion. And Luke often does that. He often does that in his, in his writing, using the indicative mood as an interrogatory without an interrogatory particle. There are many examples of that, both in his Gospel and in the Book of Acts. Biblical evidence that in context, my interpretation of Luke 16.9 is the correct one, meaning that Luke 16.9 is indeed a rhetorical question, biblical evidence is quite plain. First, the commandment states that thou shalt not steal, and Christ is certainly not endorsing embezzlement here in this parable. Second, 
it is certain that the friends of the unrighteous steward cannot receive him into any eternal dwelling. Only Yahweh can do such a thing as that. Third, verse 13 plainly states that one cannot serve both Yahweh and riches simultaneously. So the obvious answer to the rhetorical question is no, you should not make friends for the riches of unrighteousness that those friends may receive you into eternal dwellings. Because, of course, they cannot. This is clearly a rhetorical question. And one that every other translator has evidently overlooked. The real lesson here is that the unrighteous steward, who is evidently one of the sons of this age, which we see in verse 8, acted as those of his race are expected to act. He acted craftily. His reward is in this life. He has no reward hereafter. The possibility that the sons of light can, and they often do, indeed mimic the sons of this age, is reflected in the warning of Christ given in this parable. The sons of light, the true Adamic Israelites, the true children of God, should not do as the others. They should not act as the sons of this age act, although they clearly have the capacity to do so. We will see that in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. The Israelites' eternal dwelling is with Yahweh, and there is no other eternal dwelling. He should store his treasure there, since worldly riches mean nothing. Luke 16.10 He who is faithful with little is also faithful with much. And he who is unrighteous with little is also unrighteous with much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful with the unrighteous riches, who shall entrust to you the true? If you do not seek to do the will of God with that which you have gained in this world, how could you expect to be rewarded in the kingdom to come? That's what Christ is saying here. Verse 12. And if with that of another you have not been faithful, in other words, if you are not faithful with what you have been given stewardship over, who will give to you that which is your own? The earth is Yahweh's in the fullness of it. Therefore, even what you have now is not really your own. I quoted this passage when I discussed men and riches in, I think, Luke chapter 12. Here is Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse from verse 16 once again. Who fed thee in the wilderness with manna, which thy fathers knew not, that he might humble thee, Yahweh speaking to the children of Israel, and that he might prove thee, 
to do thee good at thy later end. And now say in thine heart, my power and might, Yahweh is here speaking rhetorically. My, this is actually a Socratic dialogue, right? And now say in thine heart, my power and the might of mine hand has gotten me this wealth. But thou shalt remember Yahweh thy God, for it is he that gives thee power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant which he sware unto thy fathers as it is this day. If we have wealth, we get that wealth from God. We get the ability to accumulate that wealth from God. Therefore, we should be good stewards and recognize that and seek to do his will with what he has given us stewardship over. That is the lesson of this parable or one of the lessons of this parable because that part of the parable is, of course, only aimed at the sons of light and not at the sons of this age. Verse 13. No one servant is able to serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will endure the one and despise the other. You are not able to serve Yahweh in riches. There are still other things to be learned from this parable concerning one's desire for wealth as opposed to one's need to serve Yahweh. But this important racial message must be considered first. If white men were truly concerned with their brethren, we could never be in the trouble which we are in today. This passage, I'm, that this commentary I'm presenting right now is from my paper on the parable of the unrighteous steward. While the mostly Jewish international bankers have been able to transfer all of our real wealth to aliens, they, being the unrighteous stewards of this age, of this present time, we have aided them in doing so out of our own individual greed. And I see this a lot. I see this even in Christian identity. One cannot love his brother, yet hire a Mexican to do labor, saving a few dollars an hour while putting his brother out of work. One cannot love his brother, yet shop at a Korean-owned grocery store rather than at a white-owned store to save 10 or 20 cents on a few grocery items. One cannot love his brother and buy an appliance made in China if there's an alternative, if there's still an alternative, I doubt it for the most part, made in Minnesota or anywhere else in, in, in his own nation because it's a few dollars cheaper. This horse is long out of the barn. Preachers should have been preaching this message in, uh, in the 1950s and 60s, right? When all this cheap junk went, when the Jews moved all of our manufacturing overseas and flooded our markets with all this cheap crap. Putting white men everywhere out of work, right? One's desire to save a few dollars, well, 
put all of our brethren out of work. Our care for riches has therefore precluded our ability to serve Yahweh by loving our brother, even in a lot of little ways. And this has been happening in the white nations for the past hundred years. Our care for riches, the desire to save a few dollars, the desire to buy more material goods for the money which we have, has enriched the Mexicans, the Japanese, the Chinese, the Arabs, the Turks, and all of those who truly hate us, and especially the Jews. The Jews, of course, have orchestrated and have taken full advantage of this situation and that's what led to our current predicament. The global trade system is described as Mystery Babylon in the Revelation. That's fully evident in Revelation chapter 18. This system is doomed to fail, as it is written. Shall white men recognize it and those behind it when it does fail? We must pray that they shall. That is our Objective. 1 John 2 9 says, He that saith he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness even until now. To support the aliens is equivalent to hating one's brother. Psalm 49, verse 6. They that trust in their wealth and boast themselves in the multitude of their riches, none of them can by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of their soul is precious, and it ceases forever. That he should still live forever and not see corruption. Only God can redeem us. Therefore, we must serve God and not mammon. Luke 16, verse 14. And hearing all of these things, the Pharisees, being lovers of money, then scorned him. And he said to them, You are justifying yourselves before men, but Yahweh knows the things of your hearts. For that which is being exalted among men is an abomination before Yahweh. 1 Timothy 6.10 for the love of money is the root of all evil, of which some striving for have been led astray from the faith, and have pierced themselves with many sufferings. That commentary should be sufficient. Luke sixteen sixteen. The law and the prophets were until John. From then, the kingdom of Yahweh is proclaimed, and all force their way into it. It is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of the law to fail. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and she, being divorced from a man, commits adultery marrying. Many suppose that this verse is unconnected to those which precede. Many commentators taking it to be merely, and I'll say merely because it's not that alone, merely 
Christ's changing the topic and giving a discourse on marital relations. In actuality, Christ was not a rambling speaker. Changing the topic on a whim and not being able to maintain a train of thought. The text here is actually intimately connected with the statements which precede. Neither is Christ giving strictly or merely a moral lesson here concerned with mundane marital relationships. Rather, his mention of divorce is connected in every way to the parable of the unrighteous steward. And to those, and this is plainly evident today, forcing their way into the kingdom of heaven. As we have already discussed, a great percentage of Judeans, Judeans using the term to describe the Roman political district, which is what it described in the first century, a great percentage of Judeans at the time of Christ were not Israelites, but were actually Edomites or other Canaanites converted to Judaism after their absorption into the political nation. Historical and biblical evidence of this fact abounds. For instance, in Josephus' Antiquities, Book 13, Chapter 9. In John, Chapter 8. Romans, Chapter 9. In Strabo's Geography, Book 16, Chapter 2, Paragraph 34. The priesthood of Judea and the various sects of priests and, and the political sects, since the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Essenes were all sects both political and religious in nature, the priesthood and the various sects of priests were certainly also mixed. And the historical evidence of such is found in Josephus' Antiquities, Book 20, Chapter 10. And by noting Josephus' statement in his book entitled Wars of the Judeans, book 2, chapter 8, where he contrasts the Essenes, whom he calls Judeans by birth, to the other sects, all of whom ostensibly were not all true Judeans, did not consist of true Judeans exclusively, but allowed anybody to enter. There is also Eusebius' remarks in his History of the Church at Book 1, Chapter 6, where he talks about the corruption of the priesthood and the entrance into it by outsiders. Once it is evident, understanding this history, that here Christ is addressing a mixed audience, the meaning of his statement at Luke 16, 16 is quite clear. For the kingdom of heaven is open only to the children of Israel. Matthew 15, 24, I come but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 through 10. Revelation chapter 21, verses 9 through 12. The statement of Joshua Christ, that unless a man is born from above, he shall not see the kingdom of heaven. 
These Edomites and Canaanites and other aliens in Judea in positions of political power or ecclesiastical authority at the time of Christ, these are the people that all force their way into it. These are the people that force their way into the kingdom of heaven. That doesn't mean it'll work. That doesn't mean they'll gain entrance. This has implications for today even greater than those in the time of Christ. In another conversation, it's not a record of the same conversation. It's a similar statement of Christ's in another conversation. Recorded in Matthew chapter 11, Christ spoke of the same topic where he said, and I quote, And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of the heavens suffers violence and the violent ones plunder it. This is exactly parallel, parallel to the parable of the unrighteous steward, which we saw at the beginning of Luke chapter 16. Today, under the stewardship of the international Jews, we see that the violent ones have indeed plundered all of the nations of Christendom and are in the process of plundering whatever they've left behind these past hundred years. And they have also very craftily created an environment whereby all force their way into it. So the versions of the warning recorded in both Matthew chapter 11 and here in Luke chapter 16, are both perfectly and literally true. If Christianity and the kingdom of heaven were for all men, there would be no concern with anyone forcing their way into the kingdom of heaven, just like the Baptist pastors do, and the Catholic priests. They rope in anybody they can get into their churches. Rather, Christianity is exclusive. It's exclusive to the children of Israel for whom the new covenant and for whom redemption under the law were promised. And for that reason, because the kingdom of heaven is exclusive to the group of people to whom it was promised, for that reason, there is concern that all force their way into the kingdom of heaven. This one simple, that these three simple verses are a total refutation of universalism. The law of divorce. The law of divorce was not part of, of the Levitical law, although it is given in Deuteronomy chapter 24. There is one other law concerning marriage which was given to priests in Leviticus that was not given to the people in Deuteronomy. That's the requirement of a man's wife to be a virgin. It was required of priests. While divorce and remarriage were permitted under the law, it was not by the sovereign will of Yahweh, which itself is better reflected in Leviticus and here in the New Testament and elsewhere in the New Testament. 
Therefore, Christ explains, as found in Matthew chapter 19, where the Pharisees say to him, then why had Moses instructed to give a letter for a bill of divorce and to put her away, put a wife away? And Christ answered, he says to them, because Moses, for the hardness of your hearts, had permitted you to put away your wives. But from the beginning, it had not been thusly. Now I say to you, that he who should divorce his wife, not for fornication, and should marry another, commits adultery. There is the sovereign will of Yahweh, and there is the permissive will of Yahweh. The law in Deuteronomy reflects his permissive will. The priests in Leviticus were held to a higher standard, his sovereign will. In the segment of this Luke presentation from last week, we presented all of the scriptural evidence that Yahweh married to Israel, Israel is a nation, and having divorced Israel, by his own word, commits adultery if he remarries, unless, of course, he remarries only Israel and not any one of the other nations. Those same ancient Israelites whom he divorced. The new covenant is a matter of prophecy. For instance, in Jeremiah 31, 31, and in Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 25, the new covenant, a matter of prophecy, is spoken only concerning the houses, the families of Israel and Judah. Paul, in Romans chapter 7, where he discusses husband-wife relations, divorce and remarriage, is actually teaching the same thing which Joshua Christ had taught here. The children of Israel committed adultery, and then they were put away or divorced by Yahweh their husband. However, Yahweh's divine will does not permit him another wife. In the meantime, the children of Israel, Israel as a nation, is liable to death under the law for having committed adultery. But in Jeremiah chapter 31, Yahweh promises that there will be a new covenant between himself and Israel, and that Israel will not die, but will always be a nation. The only way in which Yahweh could keep all of these promises is to die himself, freeing Israel from the law of the husband, which would permit Yahweh to once again have Israel for a, for a wife, maintaining the letter of the law. This is a Christian paradox. This is an amazing story. And this is what Paul is explaining in Romans chapter 7. While men sin, and many men divorce and remarry on one or more occasions, Yahweh will not sin, and he will not break his law, and he will not break his divine will concerning marriage and divorce. 
Romans chapter 7, verse 1. Are you ignorant, brethren, I speak to those who know the law, that the law lords over the man for as long a time as he should live? For a woman married to a living husband is bound by law, but if the husband should die, she is discharged from the law of the husband. So then, as the husband is living, she would be labeled an adulteress if she were found with another man. But if the husband should die, she is free from the law. She is not an adulteress being found with another man. Consequently, my brethren, you also are put to death in the law through the body of Christ, for you to be found with another who from the dead was raised in order that we should bear fruit for Yahweh. That other is Yahweh himself, Yahshua Christ, Yahweh come in the flesh. Indeed, when we were in the flesh, the occurrences of sin, which were through the law, operated in our members for bearing of fruit for death. But now we are discharged from the law, being put to death in that which we were held, so that we, were, we are bound in newness of spirit and not oldness of letter. Now, of course, Paul's allegory here is not concerned with the concept of divorce and the laws concerning divorce. And it does not matter who Israel was found with in her divorced state. Israel was liable to judgment under the law because she played the harlot while still married to the husband, for which reason Israel was put out of the house of the husband, which happened in the Assyrian and Babylonian deportations, as it is portrayed in the prophets. Christ, Yahweh come into flesh, come to redeem his people, commits adultery if he accepts anyone who is not an Israelite. all advocates of universalism, in essence, accuse Christ as committing adultery. They are making an accusation against God of committing adultery. The words of Christ explicitly state that he will not commit adultery and marry anyone else. Therefore, the marriage supper of the Lamb can only include the children of Israel. The word Christian can only be applied to the children of Israel. He put his name upon them. Luke 16, verse 19. Now there was a certain wealthy man, and he was clothed in purple and linen, enjoying himself splendidly each day. Now the Codex Beze prefaces this verse with the words, and he also spoke another parable. There are certain Baptists who deny that the story of the rich man and Lazarus is a parable. The third century papyrus, labeled P75, names the wealthy man. It actually says that he was a certain wealthy man named Nuas, N-E-U-A-S, Verse 20, and there was a certain poor man named Lazarus, 
cast before his gates, having sores, and desiring to be fed from those things which fall from the table of the rich man. Yet even the dogs coming licked his sores. The word for sores in verse 20 is a participle from a verb, elko, halco, I'm sorry, which means to drag. Some may, may assert that it infers that the sores had to have been caused by dragging and represent certain concepts. However, the word was used widely of sores of no particular sort. A slightly different form of the same word appears in Revelation 16.11, where it is also translated as sores. In verse 21, here in Luke, Luke 16, the word for sores is from the related noun, Helkos. Verse 22, Then it happened that the poor man died, and he was taken up by the angels into the bosom of Abraham. Then the wealthy man also died and was buried. And in Hades, lifting his eyes, being in trials, he saw Abraham from afar and Lazarus in his bosom. The parable of the rich man and Lazarus is just that. It's a parable, and it is indeed a parable. There are some who claim that it is not a parable and that it should be taken literally because it is, so they say, the only parable where an individual character is given a name, a proper name, Lazarus in this, in this case. Some go so far as to claim that this was the Lazarus whom Yahshua raised from the dead, even though the circumstances of the parable are not at all similar to those of the life of Lazarus, the brother of Martha and Mariam, as the accounts concerning him relate. The one exception does not prove a rule contrived by men, and it is plausible that a character in the parable may indeed have a name. The scribes of the Codex Beze is noted above at verse 19, also accepted this story as a parable. Verse 24. And calling out, he said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus in order that he may dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I travail in this fire. But Abraham said, Child, you must remember that you received your good things during your life. Yet Lazarus, likewise, evil things. And now here he shall be consoled, but you shall travail. And besides all this, between you and us, a great chasm has been fixed by which those wishing to pass across from here to you are not able. Neither from there to us may they cross. And I see that as representing the fact that once you pass from this life, your reward is determined and you can't change it then. So you better seek to earn a better reward now. The circumstances of the parable on its surface seems to support the conclusion that the Catholic version of hell, where the souls of the deceased suffer forever 
in some sort of literal fire is a reality. It is not. In Isaiah 66:24, we see this, and it's speaking of the children of Israel. And I quote, And they shall go forth and look upon the carcasses of the men that have transgressed against me. For their worms shall not die, neither shall their fire be quenched, and they shall be an abhorring unto all flesh. Christ quotes that passage from Isaiah in Mark 9, 48, in relationship to the fires of Gehenna. However, here Christ is making an allegory, as he, being Yahweh in the flesh, also made at Isaiah 66, 24. And which he later quotes is recorded in Mark 9.48. They're all allegories, I would assert. He is using language that Christians before the crucifixion, and when I say Christians before the crucifixion, I mean Israelites who have an expectation in Christ. He is using a language that pre-crucifixion Christians could understand from Scripture. The allegory which Christ uses here is of substance before the cross, where the souls of the dead were interred in Sheol, the Greek Hades, which is somewhat evident in Scripture in 1 Samuel chapter 28 and in 1 Peter chapter 3, where Peter speaks about those under the earth, Paul also makes, makes a reference to them, to whom Christ preached the gospel, those who had sinned before the flood of Noah, to whom Christ preached the gospel, who were at that point released from the prison. Yet in 1 Peter chapter 3, we also learn that those prisoners, those prisoners in Sheol or Hades, or whatever you want to term it, those who sinned before the cross of Christ and even before the flood of Noah, they were freed upon hearing the gospel. Furthermore, Paul informs us in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that the spirit of man survives the judgment of fire, whether that man merits a reward or not, for all Israel shall indeed be saved. There is nothing which indicates that the rich man in the parable is not an Israelite. Christ speaking before the cross, the allegory, the symbolism used in the parable made sense before the cross. When Hades or Sheol was the place where the souls of the dead were interred, allegorically speaking, there is nothing which indicates that the rich man in the parable is not an Israelite. A lot of people would like to think he's a Jew, or he's an Edomite Jew, I should say. Yet Yahweh chastises his sons, and Yahweh does not chastise bastards. Hebrews 12.8. Many Israelites at the time of Christ did not accept him, as Peter explains in Acts chapter 2, and which is evident in many other places in Scripture. It is much more likely that, as is evident from Scripture, 
for instance, in the story of the Transfiguration on the Mount, some Israelites went to Yahweh after their bodies died, even before the cross. That would be the bosom of Abraham. The bosom of Abraham is an allegory for presence with God in the spirit for those who had departed. Yet the preponderance of Israelites spent their time in Hades until the cross, and that the rich man was one of those. Christ using these symbols and these beliefs concerning the netherworld or the afterlife, which the pre-cross Hebrew Israelites held, Christ using those symbols and allegories to make his point, both here and in Mark chapter 9. Luke 16, 27. And he said, Then I ask you, Father, that you may send him to the house of my father. For I have five brothers, so that he may testify to them that they may not also come to this place of trial. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. They must hear them. Then he, meaning the rich man, said, No, Father Abraham, but if one would not go to them from the dead, I'm sorry, but if one would go to them from the dead, they shall repent. And finally, verse 31, But he, meaning Abraham, said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither would they be persuaded should one be resurrected from the dead. And this language in these final verses again proves that this account is a parable. It's not a story to be taken literally. Since first, the historical Lazarus had no such commission, and second, Christ here is making an allegory concerning his own mission since it is he alone whom Moses and the prophets had written about, and not Lazarus. Even Christ, raised from the dead, would not be heard if one cannot hear Moses and the prophets. The parable and its allegory were effectual to Hebrews in the first century, since they would have understood its context within the bounds of their culture and their beliefs. Today it is not so relevant since Christians must understand that all Judeans who were able to be converted most certainly were or died in the opening centuries of the Christian era. The Jews of today, while perhaps partially descended from Judeans, may claim to have Moses and the prophets but certainly do not and cannot hear them. They are bastards and not sons. That'll finish my presentation of Luke chapter 16. Thank you for listening, and praise Yahweh. I will be here tomorrow, which I believe with sword brethren. I'm not sure. I, I haven't had the chance to touch base with him during the week, and I will call him in the morning. I believe we'll be prepared to offer a speech which he has selected from um, 
Wow. It's totally escaped my mind right now. I apologize for that. (laughs) I can't remember. One of the politicians of the 1930s and 40s. I'll be here next Friday with a presentation of Luke chapter 17. Praise Yahweh, and thank you for listening. Good night.